everybody, welcome back to Uptime. We have another great episode for you this week. First off, the companies involved with insuring renewables think covering lightning damage is too risky and they may drop coverage. Rosemary, Joel, and I discuss the reasons behind this move. Then we, we review a new idea from Swedish-based wind project developer Hexacon, who thinks the future is building floating wind platforms like IKEA builds furniture. And then Joel and I have a chat with Morton Hamburg of Wind Power Lab about inspecting blades at the factory before they are shipped to prevent costly repairs and delays at the job site. Stay tuned. We'll be back after the music. All right, guys, so the insurance companies that insure wind turbines for lightning damage are getting a little antsy about it and are starting to do two things that I've seen lately. One, really push operators to keep their wind turbine blades, lightning protection systems actively working, like verified everything's up in order. And second is they're pushing back on the OEMs because they're paying out too much money in lightning claims. And there's an article, a recent article from Robert Bates, who's the head of claims for Nardac. And Nardac is a insurance broker. Um, and they've looked at a number of lightning strike damages to renewable projects, which includes wind turbines. And so they, they wrote this this piece describing what the what the real root of the problems are and what the industry is likely to do. And I think what the industry is likely to do is the interesting piece of this. So the, what Robert says is that lightning activity is expected to increase, increase by about 12% for every one degree Celsius of, of warming. And they figure the United States could see a 50% increase in the number of lightning strikes. I've seen differing opinions about that, but let's just take, take that for what it is. And, and, Rosemary, as you well know, as blades get longer and longer, they, they eventually add carbon fiber fiber to them to stiffen them up. Uh, so as the turbines get taller, they're getting struck more often, and they're becoming more of a target for bigger lightning strikes. So one of the major claims, insurance claims, is lightning damage. So what does an insurance company do? Well, they're trying to figure out how to de-risk this. And since the projections are 50% more lightning strikes, that means 50% more damage. That means 50% more payouts. That's not a situation where the insurance companies want to be. Well, what they're basically saying and what Robert is saying is, and I don't want to summarize this for him. He can speak for himself clearly, but everybody go, go read that article, is that there's going to be much more uh, pushback in the contracts and there's going to be much pushback from the insurers onto the OEMs to the point of maybe not insuring some wind turbine operators based on where the farm is. Now that's new. I've heard of them uh, not insuring certain types of wind turbines and I think that will continue on. There's certain types of wind turbines they do not want to insure for lightning because of the issues. But if they're trying to take some of the risk off of the insurance companies and put it onto the operators, that's not a really a workable situation and to summarize the article what they're what robert's trying to get to is that there's gonna be more reliance on international standards like the iec standard uh, to verify that the lightning protection system is working and also more emphasis on basically maintaining the system so as we have seen recently on 
TikTok, Rosemary, and on YouTube. There's been some pretty interesting, visually interesting lightning strikes to wind turbines that have got a lot of eyeballs. Uh, does, does the industry, the OEM side, start to step up and take more of a lead in the lightning protection system instead of relying on inter international standards? Or does, does the insurance companies finally step in, like they have done in many other industries, and say, we're not going to pay for this. Tough luck. You guys figure it out. And, and Joel, you close on the uh, RCA side. Are, are you seeing less activity, more activity on the insurance side? Are the insurance companies getting more involved into some of these claims? I think what, what I see and what we're seeing uh, on the insurance side and wind is that you're starting to see a lot more of the insurance companies lean towards this uh, insuring wind turbines as a specialty insurance. Of course, we all know it's a specialty insurance, sure. but more sure. uh, along the lines of really specialty. So more due diligence along what kind of blades do you have? Uh, whereas before, when, when they, like, I know like certain insurance companies, they just did market grabs. We're going to soak up all the renewables we can. Right. They didn't right. look at the, the condition of the blades the design of the blades, the model of the blades, the age of the blades, all these different things, you know, is the, is the asset owner a prudent operator? Oh, Are they yeah. maintaining them properly? Yeah. Have they tested the LPS systems? You know, is there a bunch of leading edge erosion that could be, you know, causing lightning attraction to, in the wrong places? Those kind of things weren't thought about in the past. And what we're starting to see from, from our side as a, as a blade consultant company is more and more insurance companies are getting diving deeper into the blades to make sure that they're taking on quality risk instead of just a large book of risk let's take on some quality <laughs> risk because because i mean the you know the the number that was out in 2019 was 3800 roughly blade cases in the world that year and at that right. point in time there was about 400,000 turbines worldwide so you figure 0.1 percent uh, if we go by number of blades, 0.033% of blades are affected. Uh, so that's statistically, you can count that. Now, if you want to get quality risk, you find the ones that have the best LPS system, uh, take those on. If they have bad LPS systems that you don't like, don't take those on. Uh, and then what are the asset owners actually doing? Are they actually maintaining them? What, what does it look like? What does their maintenance program look like? So the insurance companies from, from our side, you're starting to see the insurance companies step up and uh, force it will force the asset owners here in the next few years to to be more prudent and provide better records of how they maintain their blades. And Rosemary, on the blade design side, and you were involved in de-icing or anti-icing of blades. It's probably one of the most difficult things to do in in the blade world. But you're also involved with structures. The lightning protection systems on these blades really haven't evolved very much since. I remember some of the first designs back in the early 2000s. Uh, with the addition of carbon fiber, is, are there much? Is there really a lot of differences yeah. on the light, lightning protection systems? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, so I never really, um, I barely worked with lightning protection until I worked on a carbon fiber blade. Um, before then, the rule was just don't put anything conductive, <laughs> you know, past... <laughs> I don't know, 10 or 12 meters like, into yeah. the blade, you know, like you, you can't go very, very far. Um, and 
yeah, and even, you know, we had these in incredible long list of things that you couldn't put in there, um, you know, in case there were like traces of the, like the factory workers all had blue markers um, or red, not black, because there's some, uh, I think there's some graphite in the, the black ones and, you know, that could attract lightning and, you know, stuff, really? stuff like that. They really uh. just, the yeah, the rule was just nothing conductive in the blade except for the lightning um, lightning cable. Wow. Um, and that was a very simple, simple and or not always easy to follow, but it was very clear what the what the policy was. Um, definitely rules out a lot of options for um, de-icing, though, for blade heating. Um, and then when we needed to change to uh, a more effective blade heating system, because, you know, if you can't put anything conductive out in the, the blade, then it rules out any, like, um, you know, like, resistive heating type system right um so it was just when we were using a hot air system and you you know have all the fans the fans are metal and all the electrical connections are obviously metal um yeah so they would all be in the blade root and by the time that the the air gets out to the tip it's um it's not as hot and yeah there were lots of other challenges associated with that system you know keeping all the ducts and everything um in good condition for the whole life of the blade so when I worked on a, a carbon a blade with some structural carbon fiber, um, and we were using a carbon fiber resistive heating system, then <laughs> my project became much less like it used to be. My project was to design a heating system for a blade, and I really felt like on that blade, my job was like the the heat the heating system was 90 percent lightning protection and 10 percent heating as like the heating was an afterthought because <laughs> yeah. the lightning protection was so complicated yeah and i don't think i can get into the the details of how we solved these mm. problems but certainly it did not look anything anything like the you know the old traditional design where you have a receptor you know like a big chunk of copper or something um like a hockey hockey puck of of copper at right at the blade tip and a big thick cable um, conducting electricity all the way down the length of the blade and connecting it to the the yeah the, the tower and the ground. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's how it used to be. And the new system was at least a million times more complicated than that, <laughs> in my opinion. It, it gave me no no end of of headaches. And um, yeah, it's also one thing to design it, but then another thing to make it and um you know like because when you've got the carbon fiber uh the lightning it always wants to jump over to other conductive materials sure. and um you're trying to stop it so you put an insulator in between them but you know there's a difference between an insulator that you you know test in the lab on this you know small scale that's perfect um and has never you know been been flexed it hasn't gone right. through a million <laughs> a million uh, loads of being loaded and unloaded um, yeah, so then you put that out in, in the field and it's suddenly it's got some manufacturing defects in it as ev every wind turbine blade does. Um, and it's got some, you know, small damages as every wind turbine blade does, and then things start behaving differently. And I think that it's because we've had this huge change in, um, that what the, the system is trying to do now that, you know, it took some time to get the real world experience, um, and and to learn what how your design needed to to be it, you can't you just yeah. can't do that in the lab and and come out with a perfect system nope. the first first try no. but already before that like in the industry um 
nobody really felt like the certification was enough, right? right. There's this general idea, super easy to get a lightning protection certificate. Yes. Um, not very easy to get a blade that won't be damaged by lightning. Like everybody is designing to their own internal standards that are, they meet the certification, but then they go beyond that based on field experience. So I think that, yeah, it's just the problem has become more more challenging and it's just not the new new type of lightning protection systems are not quite mature yet right um I, I, in my opinion pointing at the pointing at that iec standard for lightning it, it, it actually leaves out some of the i guess in some people's opinions it leaves out some of the components that are needed to be certified too as far as uh metadata around lightning <laughs> you know it, it stops at yeah specific energy basically and that's it yeah uh, where we need to be looking at some more things that aren't even certified or aren't even on the Yeah, that's something that's so common. Like when I work on um, when I work on root cause analysis, R RCA, you you would think that you know you got a lightning card in there, you should be able to tell <laughs> if you know was this damage caused by lightning strike. You never can, like almost almost never. It's so I can't think of a time when I've worked on a project and it's like, oh yeah, well they've got a lightning card, so everything's clear. It's it, it was wasn't installed or it hasn't been checked for you know so so long that who, who knows? knows who knows yeah, what it's no, telling you're right you. i think those lightning cards don't really tell you all that much it's a great idea but the implementation of it leaves a lot to be desired i think ping is working on a, a better system right what do you know about about that you must yeah be we're we're with... pretty deep into a lightning sensor for them yeah and the from from our perspective having looked at a lot of lightning strikes to wind turbines some of the smaller lightning strikes are doing the most damage and lightning in the aerospace world where I come from and into the, the wind world, there's really, um, they're really similar in this way. Once the engineering standard has been written, everybody forgets about what the real physics are because you have a standard and you assume that the, there's been a group of people mm. going through this and that they've all figured out how to create this worst case environment, but it's worst case for the situation they wrote it for when they're all around the committee table. What happens is technology is moving faster than the committees can keep up with it. Same thing happens in aerospace. So the the the, the lightning uh, and the way lightning behaves, the little nuances start to become more um, of a problem than they were 10 years ago, because the technology is different. It's, an aluminum aircraft and a carbon fiber aircraft don't work the same. I mean, there's, you're just doing different things on them. Uh, same thing exists on a, a, a fiberglass wind turbine blade versus a fiberglass with the big carbon spars in it. They just behave differently. I don't think the industry has figured out how to deal with all that yet. And uh, Rosemary, you're right. I think the flexing is a huge issue. And what we test on the airplane world and also in the wind turbine world, we always test pretty much the ideal, a brand new blade airplane part and show that it works the way we intended it to. The effects of aging are massively influential in terms of the types of damage you're going to see. And because we're about 10 years into this experiment, Joel, mm. this is where we're at. So we're learning about what happened in, you know, blades of design in 2012, what's 2022 now what kind of effect are we seeing? We're, we're not seeing the results we would have predicted in 2012. That's that's the part I think the insurance company is starting to get a little antsy about is saying, 
the 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 evolution of lightning protection is not keeping up with the pace of blade growth. People like Rosemary are designing bigger blades faster than mm -hmm. lightning community can kind of keep up with it. And what are we going to do? Or is the insurance companies willing to take that risk or are they going to return it to the OEMs? I think in some cases the OEMs are going to have to eat it. Yeah, exactly. I'm hearing from, um, you know, I mostly work with developers and um, wind farm owners, operators, yeah. and I'm hearing that it's getting harder and harder to get lightning insurance. Sure. And then, so the concern of, of the kinds of clients that I have, it's, it's, it's number one. I mean, they don't want lightning, but almost more serious concern to them is you can never figure out whose fault it is. And that makes it really hard right. for insurance because everybody's insur each party's insurance company thinks that it's not their, it's not their responsibility. Um, so you can have insurance between, you know, the, the OEM, um, and you know, I guess their warranty, not, not insurance, but their warranty. And then the wind farm owners insurance should cover all circumstances. But if you can't, if you don't know what the circumstance is, then both sides can argue that it's not That's their right. responsibility. And I think that, you know, like the, the first preference would be lightning protection systems that just worked and you never damaged a blade. But I think most, most developers would be pretty, pretty happy to just definitively be able to say whose fault is this so that you could just insure it yeah. and get on with it. You know, you accept that we're going to pay a higher premium for a while while we sort out, um, you know, the, yeah, the, the design of these new systems yeah. and how they age. But um, yeah, as long as you can insure, people don't really care that much. So one of the things that we've been working on the last year or two is looking at those little nuances, those, those lightning strikes that seem weird and, and that are, particularly damaging and what's driving them. And I, th I think we have some ideas on that. Uh, and it, it, it sort of evolves back into, or devolves back into what we've learned out of the aircraft world too. It's just totally different. Once you get moving at the speeds and, and at the altitudes that wind turbines are at right now, you're kind of acting a lot more like an airplane than you were 10 years ago. And, and that's where when everybody needs to take a step back, I think, and relook at the problem. It's It's the next couple of years are going to be really painful in the lightning protection community, I think. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure from the OEMs and from the insurance companies trying to get the problem solved, and we'll see how the industry responds to it. Interesting development, and this article is, is just highlighting that issue. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com news. Offshore wind in the Gulf of Mexico, there are uh, an announcement by the U.S. Interior Department that they're going to be ramping up offshore wind energy right on the coast of Texas and Louisiana, so right in that sort of northwestern part of the Gulf of Mexico. And there's uh, one of the sites is going to be 24 miles off the coast of Galveston, and Galveston's just south of Houston, and it's going to cover about 500 thousand acres of a site and potentially power up to 2.3 million homes, which I think Houston is about 4 million people, 5 million people. So that's a lot of big part of, of uh, Southeast Texas then would be covered by 2.3 million homes. And, and the, the second project could be in Port Arthur, which is in near Lake Charles, Louisiana, near New Orleans. And that's about a 200,000 acre site, which could power up to 800,000 homes, which would be most of New Orleans and the surrounding area easily, yeah. Uh, so this has implications just because of the timing of the announcement. It's Texas has been going through, a, uh, not blackouts, but they've been asking people to reduce the power usage during the daytimes uh, in part 
because of some maintenance issues that are going on, but also because the winds die down in the in the middle of the day, which I think is unusual. So if you look at the the, the wind speeds and the amount of power produced at, from ERCOT, and they have a you just go to the website ERCOT.com, it'll show you the solar and the wind combined, the renewable energy on the on the grid, the predictions and what's what's actually happening live. And you see that, that the winds actually slow down during the daytime. So the solar picks up where the winds slow down. So they, they're complementary. So the moving uh, wind offshore sort of adds to that variability of energy sources. Uh, and the, the uh, we had a, a comment on YouTube, Rosemary of all places. Uh, it was a comment from someone who appears to live in Texas and was upset about the fact that during the hottest part of the day that the wind wasn't operating as as much power, creating much power. Therefore, they had to shut off air conditioners to, to get through that part of the day. But the energy company, ERCOT, knows that. And it's not, not that the engineers don't know. They totally know what that distribution looks like. But adding an offshore element to this would add a little more variability because it's also you mean someplace diversity. different. Right? Texas is a huge state, right? Like rather than yeah, yeah, they're adding to diversity. So that's a weird complaint to have that you don't have enough wind in the middle of the day when it's really hot because there is obviously another renewable energy technology that correlates very well with the you know hot hot days. So I mean that's an easy solution right. because solar panels are, are cheaper. If you can use the power when you generate it, then of course you want you want solar panels. So it just sounds like they haven't got enough solar in their mix yet. Um yeah. So I mean that's th what it sounds like. Yeah that right. Wind solves the harder problems usually. Um so yeah it's interesting that they uh, yeah it's, it's just a bit different to um, how I guess how things are tracking in Australia. We have the problems from too much solar and not enough wind, um, and it sounds like the opposite with with Texas. So I, I want to get to the energy diversity part of this because they said our offshore wind has less variability as compared to onshore wind, and if you look at the power prices in Texas, the very tip of Texas, kind of around I want to say Brownsville. Am I in the right general vicinity? Joel, just at the very tip, bottom, southern part of Texas, the energy prices are much, much, much lower because there's a whole bunch of wind down there that doesn't get transmitted up to the rest of the state. So if you look at the power prices, it may be a thousand bucks of a megawatt hour in Dallas area, which is sort of North Texas, but at the very tip of Texas at the bottom, it's it's in the hundred dollar megawatt hour at the peak times. So it's a huge difference. So it's a combination of maybe not having enough wind possibly, needing to add some offshore wind, but also transmission lines seems to be part of the equation too. So Joel, it's, does this offshore wind piece basically take make Houston uh, the renewable capital of the world, if it isn't already, if this happens? Well, Houston right now, if you ask anybody in the, in the tech world down there, they're touting themselves now as the energy transition capital of the there world. There you go. As before, it was always the the energy capital of the world. Yeah. And, and you're yeah. starting to see a lot of moves being made down there. What a better place to do it at all those engineers down there. We've had tons of high quality offshore uh, engineers in oil and gas uh, and onshore engineers in oil and gas for, for years and years and years. Uh, and now they can make that transition. But so talking offshore wind right outside of Houston, I have quite a few buddies that fish down there. And they'll tell you, if I can get a day in the forecast where I'm at like two or three footers 
two or three footers, meaning two or three foot rolling waves. Yeah. That's the day. I, that's the day I'm going to run out to the to the rigs and go fishing. That's what they. Always, that's where all the fish are. <clears throat> you know, south of Galveston, that's that's a hundred miles offshore. You start heading down the coast towards Mexico. It, it gets closer and closer and closer. So if they're if the guys are going to run out that far, they wait for those two or three two or three foot wave days. Now a two or three foot wave day is easily on the surface, uh, fantastic and steady. And that's why we do on offshore wind, right? There's not the topography. There's not the change in temperature that you have onshore to create these turbulent winds or intermittent winds. They're basically steady most of the time. So if they can um, install a big uh, offshore wind farm there and then land a cable onshore to bring all that power to Houston and the surrounding area, fantastic. The thing I worry about, of course, we've talked about that before on the show is Lake Charles got hit by four hurricanes last year. Right. That's scary. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I don't want to wake up one morning and the beaches of Galveston be covered in, in, blade. <laughs> in blades. So that technology needs to be developed. Now, the rest of it, the, the other problems that exist in the U.S. for offshore wind don't exist on the Gulf Coast. You're not running offshore to deep water to do floaters like you're in California. Right. You don't have the regulatory right. environment right. on the East Coast, right. like the East Coast or like the West Coast. You have vessels down there that can transport jackets and that's what I would build them with, uh, that have been already doing it. If you, if you, Like I said, you can stand on the beach in Galveston with a set of binoculars and see platforms and rigs and jackets and stuff all over the place. Uh, the infrastructure out there is massive. So the, the ability to install the workforce, uh, the regulatory environment outside of federal is a lot better in Texas and Louisiana. So I think it's that hurdle of the weather that's going to be the problem, I think. Well, this... this evolves into where wind is going to be developed and offshore winds can be developed in the United States. And I know one of the Louisiana talking points is the wind farm off of Block Island. A lot of that was actually done in Louisiana. So Block Island is near us in Massachusetts in the far northeast corner of, of the United States. And, but yet a lot of the steel and all the technology, a lot of the technology at the time was done in Louisiana. So I think there's a little bit of a pride issue there. But just like with Australia, where everything's going to be have to be shipped in, uh, I think Louisiana is opposed to is totally okay with just being a, ma a manufacturing factory site and then just ship the the foundations, the hulls, the floating whatever to where it needs to go. I think that's I think that's going to happen. Even on the Northeast, I think it's Louisiana is going to make a pretty good pitch to take over some of that work. I would bet that you see even even jumping the hurdles of of hurricanes and and the weather in the Gulf Coast. I would bet that you see offshore wind installed in the Gulf before you see it off the shore of California. I think California's going to be a long haul just because of the regulatory aspects of it. And, and speaking of uh, ingenuity in the U.S. Gulf, a company called Hexacon is talking about making IKEA packs. And Rosemary, you're an IKEA user, right? I mean, <laughs> you spent time in that part of the world where IKEA was everywhere. Yeah. You've got some Allen wrenches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody has Allen wrenches from IKEA, don't they? <laughs> Yeah. Oh well, I didn't think they made the they made the cut for the move back to Australia. The little we, we call them Allen Keys. Oh, there in, you go, in Australia. Um, so um, Allen Keys. Yeah, and in hmm. in Scandinavia, it's IKEA, not IKEA. So if you want to be that painful oh, person sorry. that corrects your friend's um, pronunciation, like I'm being now, then you can you can whip that out next I time. I guess you. <laughs> Next time someone Ikea? says Ikea. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't really play well in America. It sounds like icky. Yeah. You know, yeah. sticky, icky, right? Yeah. Ikea is a better way to go on the branding there, I think. Yeah. No, it's hard to avoid. They make a mean Swedish meatball. Yeah. I'm not so excited about their Swedish meatballs. Like, 
but you usually, if you if you go, you don't there, ever go to the cafeteria. Oh, I did on occasion. I came to really loathe that place because, um, like, no one ever wants to buy their whole apartment of furniture from IKEA, right? Like, true. <laughs> it's something that yeah. happens because you're like, I've got no storage in my bedroom, and you know, at IKEA, you can you can get a chest of drawers that precisely or pretty closely, you know, they've got like lots of different widths, lots of different heights. You can um, much more easily find that random thing that will fit in the random space that you've got and get some storage in. Um, but yeah, eventually I, I was like, I'm never, I'm never going here <laughs> again. It's just like, just hell, you know, they make you run that rat maze. Um, <laughs> you can't, you can't just get That's what you true. want. You have it, to... it is like running a rat maze. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant marketing um, by the way. Yeah. And it's, and it's all just on their to... team to drain your energy so that you have to go buy the Swedish meatballs, which is where they make all their money off in, in reality, I guess. <laughs> Add a little more energy so you can make it through the rest of the store. Yeah, yeah exactly. I believe that. You may only need that chest of drawers, but you end up walking past the bed and the quick cutting board yeah, and all that. the, the drapes. My favorite IKEA product, though, is this bamboo recipe book holder um, that it can either sit on the on the bench or it can sit on like hang off one of their their rails and yeah like when you have a recipe book holder mounted on a, a rail so that it's right there by your stove that's just life changing so yeah I do appreciate that one product <laughs> from them. Well, you, you know you obviously know what an IKEA pack is. It's those flat packages you get that are extremely heavy and you're like, oh yeah. my gosh, how come will this weigh this much? Well, that, that same sort of philosophy is being applied to uh, floating foundations. And the, the problem in the United States is like, where are you going to make all these, these floating platforms that California is never going to make on, on their coastline because it's full of surfers and uh, $100 billion homes. So they're going to do it in Louisiana, pack them up into uh, containers and put them through the Panama Canal to get to get to California. And I don't think this is a crazy idea. I think this is this is the way it's going to happen because it's just going to be easier at the end of the day. Joel, don't you see the same thing? It's just going to be easier to, to pack it up and, and put it in Connex boxes and put it through the Panama Canal and be done with it instead of trying... Like, who's going to open up a floating foundation plant in Los Angeles? You think that's going to happen? You're still going to have to have it. You still have to have a manual because where are you going to put together the IKEA box? Mexico. I, no, I think Baja. I think it's going to be in Baja, right? Why not do the whole thing in Baja? Bring the steel from Asia, which is cheaper, and build them in Baja, and then float them over. I don't. I mean, I like. I mean, I can see the concept and I like the idea, but I don't. It doesn't seem like a winner to me. It seems like it's too much work for like the juice isn't worth the squeeze. I don't know. I, I think there's a. There's an artificial barrier, which is California, and everything's more expensive there. And maybe Mex I think Mexico does make sense. I really do. That if you if you do it in Baja, it's great. Now, if you take a container ship like um like I've I've worked on these are this is funny actually I worked on an oil and gas exploration job where they brought a boat full of boats and the, and the ships were huge. They were a hundred meters long, uh, fourteen meter berth, uh, and they brought. Man, one of the jobs, they brought eight of those on one ship, offloaded them there. We did the job. They put them back on the ship, and they brought them back to France. So I, I don't see why they need to be packed down into Connex boxes. Well, you could probably build 20 foundations and put it on a ship that can go through the Panama Canal and build them whole, where all you got to do is get, when you get to, to California, you could build them whole in Louisiana. When you get to California, 
put a tower on them, put the nacelle, the blades, key side, and shoot it out there. I think that's a better idea of bringing less of them at a time, but bringing them ho almost wholly built. I want, I, uh, do you wonder if there's tax implications here? I think this is where this is going to revolve around, is the tax implications of where you assemble it. Like, how, how's California going to tax it? Because you know California has to tax it, right? And there's no way you're going to not build anything in California and not get uh, taxed. 201 miles offshore of California, in the, outside of the exclusive economic zone. <laughs> Two boats, stack them, bring them in. Yeah, I think that'll. I think you're. I think you're right about that. I think that will totally happen. I think people uh, underestimate it, the amount of steel for that, though, too. Right. So you're yes. talking when yes. you're in thousand meters of water, mooring chains. Each mooring chain, like the, the, the general public doesn't see this, but I mean, like massive, two of those mooring massive. chains are the size of a car. Yes. Like they're they're yes. huge. So that <laughs> amount of steel for these things is. The steel is not going to come from domestically. I can I can guarantee. Never. Yeah. It's, uh, so, <laughs> I, I like the IKEA pack idea. I like the idea of a focused manufacturing center in the sort of Texas, Louisiana area. Well, I, Alabama isn't Alabama one of the steel states in America, right? The Iron Bowl is one of the football games played down there because it's, it's a huge steel manufacturing area. But they will never make mooring chains there. I totally agree with you on that. It 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 is an interesting thought process to see where it goes because california at some point will have wind but joel you're right texas and louisiana will have a lot more wind installed before california does lightning is an act of god but lightning damage is not actually it's very predictable and very preventable strike tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by weatherguard it dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. I'm glad to have you back, everybody. This is Morton Hanberg from Wind Power Lab. Thanks, Alan. It's really great to be back at, at, at the show again to talk about blade uh, issues. So, Morton, you're the chief blade specialist at Wind Power Lab, and and you are our resident blade whisperer. And and we were talking a couple of weeks ago about uh, some what you're seeing on some blades. And I, and the the thing that came to the top during that discussion was manufacturing issues that we're seeing more manufacturing issues, which I think probably related to the quantity of blades we're having to, to push out and just the, the pace of things. And and uh, it just makes it difficult in the factory. So there, there seems to be a little bit of manufacturing escapes. What kinds of things are you seeing out in the field when you go look at a blade? As you know, it's, it is still a handcraft to produce blades. So there is still a lot of manual labor and, um, uh, yeah, and, and um, how do you say, Manual tooling and uh, work, uh, workmanship going into these, uh, into the producing these blades here. So it is natural to expect a lot of variation in inside the blades. But what we're seeing are some of them are you know the the old classics uh, void in the in the filler where, where if you apply too much filler then you will encapsulate some air and over time that will then create some surface crack, reach to the surface and then you would see on predominantly the leading edge. Um, we're also seeing finish works around the LPS receptors and uh, around aerodynamic add-ons like VG panels or serrated flaps, where the uh, where, where where the sealant finish um, is sometimes missing, and uh, sometimes it 
it it does it looks like it's just been been applied you know then scrape around with the thumb and then then they left the they left that uh, that that part of it to someone else um and some of that can be explained just by you know that they are under a lot of pressure in 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 hammering out these blades as fast as possible and they don't have it have a lot of time to do it and maybe not the required training in some cases um so then we're also seeing some uh, more uh, serious issues that we're seeing actually quite a lot and more than I had uh, initially expected. Uh, we're seeing a lot of missing adhesive uh, and adhesive issues in general. Um, and by missing adhesive, I mean that uh, in be between the share web and the blade shells, there is in, um, in a lot of the, the major manufacturers, there is an adhesive joint. And that adhesive joint is uh, is made by applying adhesive uh, on the on the shell or on the on the shear web, and then the and then the the parts are compressed together, and then you you you, you press the adhesive out and uh, ideally create an overflow. What we're seeing is that in some cases these uh, this insufficient amount of adhesive is being is is applied uh, to account for the thickness that is required. And then you see these air, air, air gaps or inclusions between the shear web and the shell. Uh, and that means that you don't have the, the necessary adhesive to, to, uh, to transfer all the loads between the shear web and the shell. And that can be a huge structural, structural problem for the blades. Sure. Okay. Uh, so let, let's talk the, the, the air gaps here for a minute. I've, I've actually seen that. So uh, what causes that? Is it because the, the, as the tooling is compressed, it kind of lifts off and, and quote unquote breathes a little bit. So you, then it creates a void. Is that what's happening during the manufacturing process is constant pressure isn't applied or, or it shifts? Well, it is, it is, uh, it, it can be two things. It can either be insufficient amount of adhesive uh, applied uh, if it's a manual process instead of a, and not an automated one. So that's one part. The other one is that uh, if insufficient compression is used um, and the third variable is that every single blade is unique. Um, so you will have variations from uh, blade shell to blade shell from, uh, uh, from, and from surface to surface. So you can't necessarily be guaranteed that the, that the adhesive that you expect to use on blade A is the same as you would use on blade B or blade, blade, blade C. There will be variations and if that is not accounted for, then you will get uh, voids. And it's not that big a problem I, I, essentially because you could actually fix it if you wanted to. Um, if it's discovered during the post-processing phase where the blades being QA'd and, and checked, these areas are easy to identify because we can find them just by sending a drone in through the through the blade. We can see them clear as day. So any QC with sufficient time should find this without any problems at all. And then it would be a matter of reapply, uh, reapplying additional adhesive to account for the missing. A question, Morton, then, as this is kind of a science meets art, is what it sounds like, right? You have, there's a process in place, but you need a good technician that's also gonna make sure that uh, everything gets applied properly. It, do Have you heard of, in the marketplace, any places where they're starting to automate more of this? Because that's what it sounds like to me. You have like I'm, I'm, you know, here we're here in Texas. We have the the big Tesla Gigafactory two hours away. And if you look at some of the LinkedIn posts and things they're putting out, the automation behind that factory is, I mean, next, next, next level. It's amazing. So uh, I've seen whisperings of you know like uh, mechanical and robotic glue or adhesive appliers in in some blade factories. But is anybody making big strides to say, guys, we we have issues here. We know we know they're there. 
What can we do to solve them robotically or in an automation style? Every single OEM has its has their own approach. Um, so some you some would uh, use uh, resin in infusion and RTM process to cast the entire blade, so you don't have any adhesive joints. Uh, others they have uh, they have an automated system laying out, out the glass, the, the UD pr primarily, um, so that that is done the same time the same way each and every time. Um, and I, I I guess I think you're right that some also have uh, an automated process for applying the adhesive, but it's not it's not consistent, uh, and no OEM to my mind have fully automated that uh, the entire process. Everyone has something. But they haven't. Uh, they haven't made the entire step. But they are still very heavily reliant on um, on on workmen, uh, on uh, on on technic uh, technician skills to complete the task that they haven't automated. And so far, it's also cheaper to uh, to produce a lot of, to to do a lot of the processes uh, by hand than by inventing and uh, rolling out uh, new heavy machinery. Yeah, the, what comes to mind when you say that is the picture of the 115 meter long Siemens blade that's that's all over the internet and and like a, a row of 100 people standing down each side of it and there's still all kinds of space, right? The 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 project itself, the blade itself is so big that to automate that entire thing would would create uh, a lot of robots. I, I, or one big one, I suppose. <laughs> to to the same extent, it also requires a, quite a, a quite a lot of manpower to produce it, so it evens out. <laughs> Morton, what quantity of problems are you seeing out in the field? Because it seems like these would be very common issues in the factory, based on the description of what the sort of the variables are here. So when you actually go out and look at blades getting installed into a new site, what percentage of them have bond issues or adhesive issues or other types of manufacturing errors. I think, um, and I don't want to sound over dramatic, uh, but a close, close, close to 100% would have some kind of issue. Not all of them would require repair, but you would be able to find something in each and every one, every, every blade. Which one would cause a problem further down the road, and, and which defect wouldn't? That can sometimes be. Uh, sort of a risk management, you know, how um, how risk adverse are you in, in your approach on what, what you want to fix and what, what you want to just uh, leave, stay, stay as it is. Um, but but there is there um, there are production uh, deviations, I would like to call them, in every single blade. Some of them, um, and how many of them we would call out in uh, for a, a, a repair or as in the warranty. Um, that is not 100%. The, some blades actually are passing through the test. Um, but having said that, we still look at, um, at a majority within the wind farm that where something needs to be done for every blade. Um, so it is a serious issue. And some of it will then, will then say, okay, this is actually an issue. You need to do something about it. But if you don't do something this year, you'll probably be fine anyway. But you should do something within, you know, a reasonable amount of time to avoid having fatigue issues down the line. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. What kind of repairs would be made in those situations? Are they, are they just basically replacing missing adhesive or grinding out a wrinkle in a blade? Are they sort of minor repairs or are they really serious repairs where you're going to need weeks of time to correct them? If you discover a manufacturing issue that hasn't evolved into a a severe structural issue yet, it would often be a minor repair. So a uh, an adhesive gap that hasn't caused a debonding 
that would just be reapplying adhesive and then you're done. So that would be a, a, a minimum amount of hours. But if it has already started to debond, then you're looking at a large scale repair because you then have to remove uh, or replace a large uh, section of adhesive. And if you and that is only and that is if you're lucky that it hasn't led to structural issues in the shell or, or the shear web before that. Um, and we also see um, a, a poor finish of the shear webs, uh, and the shear web is a central part of the blade. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the OEMs they use what is called a fish mouth um, finish, where they have this perfect uh, half moon shaped. Uh, finish of the share web and you'll be able to see an example of that in the uh, on the YouTube uh, version um, but and and the reason why you do that is you want to distribute the strain uh, and the strain is and um, uh, is the is the load of the uh, local load of, of over the blade uh, or over the stiffness that that defines the strain that you have and if you have a if you had a sharp finish of the share web, then you would also uh, switch from a very stiff structure to a less stiff structure, and that would create a, a large jump in the strain, and that is known to cause a lot of fatigue issues. And the OEMs found out that found that out that uh, the hard way uh, many years ago, um, and so they introduced the, the 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 fish mouth to smoothen out the transition of strain, so it wasn't a a a, a, a jump; it was it, it was a transition. And that proved to reduce the fatigue risk. Um, but what we're now seeing is actually that sometimes these finishes that are being ended with a you know with an abrupt uh, step again at the end, it still has the fish mouth, but it it doesn't have the, the complete tra transition. And we can we can see on uh, some of the um, some of the blades that we're seeing out there that that actually causes fatigue uh, fatigue delaminations at the at the start of the shear web. So that is also a, a severe issue. Luckily, we see that in less of the cases, but it's also a higher severity because it will lead faster to uh, to fatigue issues. So is that a manufacturing issue in the cutout of the fish mouth, where they just don't get the right depth of, of cut into the fish mouth? That is a that is a manufacturing issue in the cutout and the finish of the of the fish mouth that um, they they cut it too soon uh, or they didn't they didn't start the profile at the right at the right place. Uh, it can be difficult to say just from the outskirt looking at, at a picture, uh, which is which, um, but the end result is, is the same. Sure, and obviously it's a highly loaded and stressed location. It's one of the most critical parts. Right, right, it's right near the hub there. You would think that the inspections would catch that or have some sort of variability allowance, and if it went out, they would make some sort of repair. What can you do if it's not cut out properly? What are you gonna do? You, you you could re rebuild it so you you reestablish the, the the transition that that you want. You can do that by lamination. Um, it does require some overlap in in into the existing share web, but if you do that the right way, you can actually it, it can it can be done. Um, solutions are available out there for for this kind of issue, and you want to do that before you actually see the delamination starting, because then then you have to remove a lot more laminate than uh, than than the yeah than than the prefix. So then that, that gets at least to the question of blade inspections. Now, I, when I was down in San Antonio at ACP 2022, there was a lot of discussion on the floor about blade inspections at the factory or in the parking lot as you're leaving the factory or as they arrive on site. If you can catch them. Yeah, right. So they're moving so quickly now. What what can be done? One of the things that we ran into there, Alan, and I want to precursor uh, Morton with this to, to think about as well is 
I talked to some of the guys on the construction side, right? And the construction side guys are saying, I would rather you not do inspections here simply because I have to have these blades up by, you know, July 1st. And if you start inspecting them on the ground here and I have to get a repair crew in, you're going to mess up all of my timelines. And if it's the small stuff like we talked about, you can get it done in a couple days. But a lot of times if there's something big, you know, you might be there for a week or two on on that set of blades or something. Um, so just something in the background to think about while walking through this one. I would always prefer that any any owner factory QC, uh, QC of the blades is done at the factory because then they then the o, then it's the it's the OEM's problem to get it fixed before it's being delivered to site. Also to your point, Joel, that they are also they have also signed a contract to deliver blades at a certain date. If they've done that, then it doesn't really matter as much to them when the when the problem is being fixed. It really matters to them if it's captured at the factory because then they, it really can't leave until that problem is fixed or a solution is found. So there is a high incentive for the owners to get it done at the factory. Obviously, that is what the OEM would least want because that would mess up their production. That that would create a bottleneck in their end, and I get that. Um, but it it's also where the most te- skilled technicians are low located, so they would already have staff there that could fix it before it leaves. Um, so I would strongly argue for that. The problem if you're doing it on site, and I would also actually also uh, recommend doing that because you also have transport issues. So even if you have a perfect golden blade leaving the factory. When it reaches the site, you could have a large tremor in it. Um, and if you don't capture that, then you'll see it a few year, year, years later uh, when the shell is starting to, to de- detach. Um, so you want to be ahead of that. Um, and if you don't do it, and if you don't, then discover some issues. Then, to your, to, as you say, the construction team, they have, a, they have a, a schedule as well. They have a crane that is moving around and it's not going, going to wait, or wait uh, for you to, to finish, finish up repairing the blades. So, then you could end up having to fix the blades when they're on the turbine and then you lose availability. Um, obviously, it will always be a mix of, of, of the three and that, that is fine, but I would, uh, I would strongly recommend that factory inspections are done at least once at the factory of every single blade. Um, it would give a baseline of what is the condition of, of each blade. So ideally, would you have it uh, like a team of inspectors running around in the yard, or would you have it right when it comes off the line? There's a guy waiting to with his with his clipboard. <laughs> I think I think uh, uh, to be fair to the to the manufacturer, then when the factory have said this is this is done, then you would go and and check it before it leaves the lot. So when it's in the parking lot, essentially, that would be the right time to do it because. When it's being demolded, that might not give you the right... I mean, you would see a lot of interesting things, but it might not be relevant to you because essentially, as, an, as a customer, you should expect that the blades you're getting is fit for purpose, right? So you don't want to go around checking every single step during the manufacturing process. Uh, that's not efficient for you or for the OEM. So you should trust the OEM that they're providing you with a, with a fit for purpose blade, and then you check it before the, it leaves the factory. And the subset that, that doesn't fit that, that, that profile, you would then mark up the missing issues and then have it fixed before, before the leap. I think that would be the right process. So that, that has a really interesting uh, effect of possibly lowering the insurance rates for blades. If you're catching the large structural issues at the factory, you would think then once it gets out into service that it would reduce the warranty claims that are going to happen. Is there a push by insurance companies to ask for inspections at the factory? 
they're not asking for it right now, but um, I think they're they're looking more in that direction because they also want to see the uh, the owners and operators to take more responsibility. Um, and I think we would see in the future that there would be a favorability of the ones who are prudent operators. So the ones who do show that they've been taking care of their asset from day one, the ones who check the blades at the factory, who know what the current conditions are, who have a maintenance strategy in place to see what is actually, what, what should I do with my blades and what is my history of damages? Because you will never be rid of damages over the lifetime of the blades. That is something we have to accept. Um, but you need a good way to, to manage the, the, the issues that you have and not be surprised every time something, uh, something get, get gets damaged. Yeah, I think that when we talk about the prudent operator idea, a lot of times uh, on I, I, my mind keeps floating the construction site, but I've seen the guys, the person who's doing the receiving inspection is also the guy just taking off the straps and pointing them where to put the blade. Right. So having that proper inspector in the factory that that knows the processes that's been through and that has the blade knowledge, I think is a, is something not to be missed here as well. And Martin, if you if you're walking up to a blade just brand new and you don't have any knowledge of this blade previously, how long does it take you to look through the blade to check all the components and make sure all the bond lines are right? How long does that take? So if, you're, if you only check the bond lines and the surface structure, uh, so you're checking for surface wrinkles, you're checking for, uh, for missing adhesive, you're checking for finish, uh, finishing, um, then a, a blade up to 50, 60 meters would take about half an hour internally. Um, and the same externally. Um, obviously, if you want to do a more thorough uh, inspection, um, that also in, uh, includes checking the... Uh, you know, do, do, doing some tap testing or doing some ultrasonic, then 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 you're looking more at, at a day per plate. Um, and I wouldn't recommend doing tap testing of the entire surface. That's not efficient. That's uh, uh, <laughs> only if you know where 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 to look. Um, but uh, but but you can you can you can accomplish a lot by doing the the basic visual check. Then then you're in 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 good in good hands uh, with. The majority of the issues and then if you see that there is a lot of inconsistency in the adhesive then you can argue for an ultrasonic inspection because then there could be uh, lungs or or in, uh, voids uh, in the adhesive or between the the spar cap and 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 the shell and they're also important to find but then you do it based on 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 an actual finding that that you have um, and i think that's more efficient than Going straight forward with an ultrasonic uh, straight away as an owner, I think a lot of the OEMs they're actually doing it preemptively, and I think that they 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 should continue doing that to make sure that their blades are in top condition. Yeah, well, Martin, uh, you've really raised a lot of interesting discussion here and things that I I didn't know. I, I know inspecting in the factory is or in the parking lot is becoming much more popular. I didn't understand why, and now it it's pretty clear why that is happening and. It does seem like that's where the industry is going. I, I think that makes a lot of sense for everybody to at least consider it because it will reduce warranty claims, downtimes, all those things. If you can catch it early, you always want to catch it early. So this is this has been a really interesting discussion. And I know you sent us a bunch of, of images that we're going to put in the YouTube version of this uh, episode. So if, you, if you're not watching on YouTube, check out the YouTube version because you'll see images and descriptions of all these things that Morton's been talking about today. So Morton, hey, thanks for being on the, on the podcast again. 
Love having you on. I'm sure we're going to have you in the future. So thanks for being on this time. It was, it was a great, great pleasure. I'm looking forward to next time. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform of preference. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes uh, below to the Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's 2 million plus viewed YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you next time on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast. <laughs>